Pretty Policeman, Multiple Paradox Net Files. These are some of The Little Darlings. It's great to be gay. Our favourite episode titles. Right on, sister. Please be gentle. From all three seasons of the logbooks. You might well be very angry. So we've printed them on a t-shirt and a poster. Crash pad needed. Kiss my rump. And our limited stock is for sale at thelogbooks.org. Interested and willing? With profits going to Switchboard. Thank you for being here. So take a look at thelogbooks.org slash shop. This episode contains extreme sex practices and state homophobia. This is a logbook entry from July the 4th, 1992. Please note the back street is a strict dress code. Leather and rubber only club. Please do not send beginners there as the owner has complained about having to turn people away sent from switchboard because they're not suitably dressed. Thank you. This is a logbook entry from August 13th, 2001. Caller rang wanting to know about adult babies groups, people dressing up in nappies. Couldn't find anything in database, checked fetish slash other. Anyone know of anything? I love that the back street is still here today. Living history. You know, they actually pitch themselves as a historic fetish club. <laughs> Amazing. Um, I'm, I'm just still thinking about those adult babies. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. It's very cute. Well, I don't really know what to say about them, except I hope they found a playgroup. Mm-hmm. You're listening to The Logbooks. Stories from Britain's LGBTQ plus history and conversations about being queer today in partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline. In this season, we're reading through the notes made by the volunteers who took calls between 1992 and 2003. I'm Tash Walker. And I'm Adam Smith. Episode 9, Not Suitably Dressed. We are talking about kink. There are so many logbook entries through all the years about kink and fetish. But from 1992 to 2003, we found loads. So we're hearing from people with memories of the kink scene in the 90s, running nightclubs or just doing dirty things. And the volunteers at Switchboard who heard anything and everything about callers' desires. What's funny about kinks is that you cannot understand for one moment another person's fetish, but yet you also have your own, which are just as mysterious to everybody else. Go on, Adam. (laughs) I don't understand why some people would be into dressing up as adult babies, but I also cannot understand why people don't have the same obsession as I do with men's feet. Okay, (laughs) slowly putting my manly feet back into my socks over here, Adam. (laughs) The great thing about kink is that it's an open and welcome conversation about what turns people on, exploring fantasies and sexual pleasure. I'm Richard Desmond. At one point, there there was a regular Switchboard newsletter that was put together by a member of staff. And I had probably said in passing that I was Switchboard's resident leather queen. And it appeared in print, actually, in, in, in the Switchboard newsletter, as Richard, our resident leather queen, is doing. Seeing that in the newsletter, yeah, it was okay. It was it was true, but but not not how I normally build. <laughs> I am not everyone, and and it is absolutely fascinating now talking to young people who are choosing to have sex in different ways, and the different priorities people put on sex, and the different weightings people put on it. I look like a lot of gay men, sex is a hobby. 
lot of equipment. It's not unusual. That's not anybody else's experience. And at Switchboard we listen. We don't judge. And often we can make suggestions. You know, if, if, a, if, if, a, if a caller is saying that you know, it, they want to get into kinky sex, then you listen, you reflect back what, what they said they, they wanted to do. There is a lot of places you can buy the gear. Here, here off you go. Have you heard of London Alternative Market? It's cheaper than the gay shops. People bought their toys and fetish gear at, well, I, people, I bought my toys and fetish gear at Expectations and at Shush. They're the ones I remember. The experience of somebody moving here from Northampton in 95, well, it'd be lovely. I mean, it would be, the thing is, you know, you have to go out to the right place and meet the right people. Hi, hello, my name is Fish, also known as King Frankie Sinatra, and I was running club nights for lesbians and dykes in the 90s. Thank you very much. Switchboard talks about sex a lot. And if it's possible for humans to do it, they will talk about it with Switchboard. Now, I've yet to have a caller that's talked about buckets of custard and live eels. But almost anything else in between has come up. We have to train our volunteers to cope with this. And and we do, and, and sometimes we laugh an awful lot in training. But it's also important that we encourage safe, sane, consensual sex. Often the most the most dangerous sex is completely vanilla but emotionally manipulative. The kinkiest sex is actually very often the most considered and talked about. What we do is encourage conversations with the people who are having sex. If you're going to have sex with someone, try talking about it. It might even be fun. Telephones work. But not with us. We will talk about sex, but what we won't do is encourage callers to masturbate. Sometimes, like people wanting to do their own piercings, I get close to being directive. Um, you know, that's really not a good idea to do your own piercings unless you really know what you're doing. If you do, fine. But it, it's not as simple as it looks. Go to somebody who knows what they're doing and has got a hygiene certificate. That is pretty nearly directive advice which in switchboard world is a frowned upon thing. But it's the caller's choice. If they, if, they, if they still want to pierce themselves with a nine-inch nail, they can. Like for me, there never has been a contention about, about kink at Pride because it's been something that comes up all the time. Um, I've got a T-shirt that, that has two bears fisting on it. And it's a cartoon, but it's a very rude cartoon. In a... About 1992, maybe three, when Pride was in, in Victoria Park, um, I was wearing this T-shirt and I got told off because I was offending this lady's children. She was deeply offended that I was wearing this, this, this rude cartoon T-shirt. Pride is about very many things and part of it has, has to be that we are family friendly because we are family. People have children. So you have a no-nudity rule. 
the thing that freaks people most, perhaps, is the is is the predominantly young men who are into pup play and seeing guys in, in, in rubber pup masks. If you haven't seen it before and you don't know that generally they're really sweet guys, is a bit freaky. Kinker Pride has come up every single year. There is there has always been the conflict between the gays that have sex and the, and, and and those nice camp guys guys that you, you can relate to and no threat sexually at all. It, it's the distinction between you know the dirty gays that have sex and and the nice respectable guys. There's a big overlap. You, you know, just some people put put on their suits and look tidy. We have a function that is rooted in in, in liberation that people can be themselves as they are. People are good enough. The kink scene. What is interesting now is is that it is more polymorphous. Um, We have got a wonderful array of people who are choosing to define the, themselves in ways that just weren't around in 1992. But they were, and the people were. It's just, they were forced into far more box-like things. So somebody somebody who would now think of themselves as being pan, at that point would probably think of themselves as being bisexual, because that was the label that was, was on offer. I don't think I, I think people have always had the same wonderful diversity of, of, of gender and sexuality. I go to the most oldest, most traditional gay leather bar. You know, I'm, I'm not pretending that Backstreet is anything other than that, but it is my local. They do let switch volunteers in free and always have. We have to say we lost a generation. There's no getting away from it. Gay leather men have lots of sex. It's a hobby. You know, some people do macrame. We do sex. That led to losing a generation. HIV killed a generation of gay Londoners and it killed a generation of gay Londoners who were leathermen. So perhaps the generation that came after that had to reinvent it. Perhaps kink had to be different. Aside from the fact that leather's bloody expensive and involves dead animals, the younger generation, lycra, rubber, other sorts of clothing... It's different, but perhaps it was necessary because it is a different generation. I, it's very flattering when I get y- y- young men cruising me, and I sort, sort of say, thank you very much, you know, have a pat on the head and go away. Some are following the experience. There is still a derivation of Tom Offenden. There is, there is, there is still the, the gay masculine leather aesthetic, but there's an awful lot of other stuff as well. And it's completely fascinating and interesting. What's interesting now is that the kink scene is polymorphous. We've got this wonderful array of people who are choosing to define themselves in ways that just weren't around in 1992. Yeah, but the tastes were there and the people were there, but they were just forced into more box-like categories. Totally. So someone who'd now think of themselves as maybe being pansexual at that point might have described themselves as being bisexual because that was the more common label that was on offer at that time. 
But people have always had the same wonderful diversity of sexuality. Yes, diversity of sexuality, of desires and tastes, always bubbling away under our skin. Sometimes we keep it discreet. This is a logbook entry from March 1993. Woman caller, can you tell me about Clone Zone? Me. Yes, it's a shop selling everything from lycra shorts and underwear to leather harnesses and nipple clamps. Predominantly gay boy, but some women use it. Why, what do you want? I thought, she's looking to buy a dildo. Caller, well, I've just found a receipt in my husband's pocket. Oh dear. (laughs) I wonder how it went after that. Sadie Mays's was a lovely mixed S&M club or S&M themed club that used to go on in the basement of the London Lesbian and Gay Centre. I don't know, they'd always have something odd going on, like somebody in, in full formal sailor's uniform, just sort of in a hammock in the corner, swinging casually. <laughs> so it was very entertaining. Um And people used to wear not very much uh, or leather or what have you. I didn't really have any sort of dedicated uh, fetish gear. I used to just kind of put on a cocktail frock or a bit of underwear. I I loved it. It was great. And of course, this time when I was single, I had to make sure I was going to get home safely on my own. So I'd I'd always be travelling to these places on public transport. I didn't have an awful lot of money. And so I'd, I'd stay sober. And of course, staying sober in clubs was just perfectly the norm back then because everybody was off their tits on um, ecstasy. And I, I, I was always too scared to try ecstasy, not knowing how I'd get home. <laughs> so I was just, I'd, I'd have like one drink at the beginning of the evening and then just drink water so that I was sober for going home. Um, yeah. And I'd have a great time. <laughs> everybody loved everybody everybody wanted to dance and that's what I wanted to do I just wanted to chat and dance and everybody was very friendly everybody loved everybody and yeah there was an awful lot of dancing people found out about nights like that in um, flyers so you used to go to first out first out was the gay lesbian and gay cafe the first one in London up in um, West End in St Giles Street and um yeah there'd be flyers and so you'd go oh, a flyer and you'd have the pink paper and you'd have gay news and so things would be in the back you'd have adverts for these things and you know it wasn't it wasn't that hard to find really I don't think it was and you know you pluck up your courage get your best gear on and off you go. Susie Kruger went on to, to run Fist which was a mixed BDSM night various locations I remember going there and the early days of my relationship with my with Lucy. Um, and it was much more, you, you, did you have to dress up? I can't remember. By that time, I had a bit of rubber and stuff. I tell you what, you know you're getting old when all your rubber stuff is rotted. <laughs> uh, so we don't have any, any, anything to dress up in now. Not that I think I'd fit in it anymore. As you walked in, the sound just hit you. It was absolutely physically loud. Some pounding music, uh, very hard house music. And the smell of poppers, smell of smoke and poppers, because, uh, of course, you could still smoke in pubs back, clubs back then. 
Every every club was very smoky back then. But at least it was easy to wash the smell off your rubber. I remember seeing some interesting cabaret involving fruit. Oh, God, it's all so long ago now. I remember going to the Click Club when it was based at Central Station. I remember going when it was based in a pub called the Elephant and Castle in uh, Vauxhall, which is now a coffee bar, I think. It was kind of weird going in that coffee coffee bar and thinking, God, I saw somebody having the having the pubes shaved in this corner. I'd go along to these places and I never got off with anybody in these. Oh, no, I once got off with a woman in Sadie Mays's and afterwards felt cheated. I thought she looked gorgeous because she had these gold eyelashes on uh, and this black tutu. She looked amazing. Turned out that both the eyelashes and the tutu belonged to a gay boyfriend of hers and I think I would have had more fun with him. co-running clubs in the early 90s and the one that was probably the kinkiest and the most fetished was Chain Reaction and that was at Market Tavern in Vauxhall. Uh, Every Tuesday for a few years um, we took over a gay men's leather bar which was just fabulous because you know that's somewhere we were never even allowed in on on an everyday. So that was lovely and then um, I carried on there running a Saturday night which was also uh, leaning towards the fetish and kink end of the spectrum and um it was because it was an empty it was so interesting it was the early 90s and it was a you know a leather bar in the early 90s in London and Saturday nights there was no one there because the men weren't going for whatever reasons I mean obviously HIV and AIDS but you know that so the bar was was empty and so I said to the owner who was a very lovely man John Gleason I said um would it be possible? I think I could get some women to come. And so he said, yeah, go on, give it a go. And so, yeah, then we had every Saturday night. And I mean, even now we're hard pushed to have a Saturday night for dykes. So, yeah, that's what I always, always, always in my whole career, I aim to bring people together. That's what I do. Eventually, I ended up at the Oak Bar in Green Lanes, which was owned by two lesbians. And um, and I dropped to come. I stopped doing that. That was that went to one side and I started doing another night called Kiss. So yes, I do just like the one word. It just makes everything quicker. So yeah, and that was every Friday night. And that the, 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 the emphasis on that wasn't quite so much black leather and kink. And it was more that there was always acts and they were always, you know, sexy. We had strippers and cabarets and... And yeah, things that were that were going to push some buttons, but where there wasn't a dress code, you know, every everyone was welcome. It was Stoke Newington, you know what I mean? In the nineties, it's full of bloody lesbians. You can't move for them. So yeah, it was fabulous. Every Friday night, it was just brilliant. Just brilliant. Hello, I'm Derek Cohen. I'm fairly ancient, and one of the things that I was involved in was a club called Sadie Maisie that was set up. About ninety two, ninety three, which was um, the, the, these two guys who also used to be and were at the time SMGs organisers, and following on from the success of Dungeon in the Sky, they wanted to run a club on a more commercial basis, more than you could do on a voluntary organisation where you ran it more as a business. So that they set up Sadie Maisie as this club, which started in the London Lesbian and Gay Centre and just grew beyond belief, and it was a an S&M disco club for lesbians and gay men. 
and I used to have great fun telling, particularly friends in America, I'd say, oh, you've, you've heard about Sadie Maisie, vaguely, what is it? I said, it's an S&M disco club for lesbians and gay men, and it's funded by the local council. And if their heads hadn't exploded the idea of SM lesbians and gay men dancing, the last bit just finished them off. But it was an amazing expression of sort of SM culture in a way that's not about sex. It's about sexuality. It's about relationships. Very much about, I wouldn't say fashion, about you know clothing as an expression, fetish clothing or not. And there were certain looks like black and white urban camo trousers and a rubber singlet, a septum ring and a shaved head was like, you know, we talk about clones, leather clones. Well, this was like the SM, the Sadie Maisie clone. And there were, I, mean, I thought it was really sexy. Um, I do have a shaved head. I do have a septum piercing. And I did have some urban things. But I was about 10 years older than most of these men at the time. But it was about lots of fun and things. And um, it grew hugely. It was you know, over a thousand people a week came to this uh, up at the Electra Works, which is a sort of old horses for pulling trams shed behind in Islington. And it was just great fun and, and was part of developing a culture of that sort of thing, which I think after that you had things like Susie Kruger's Fist was another club that came in the wake of that and various other things that had that sort of fetishy thing and you have it on the straight scene as well well we used to go there in the early days of fist and when it was it was still fairly mixed but as time went on it became more and more dominated by men and i felt as a lesbian utterly outnumbered but yeah i remember some great nights out at fist. i mean i wasn't a regular guy i used to just go now and then Oh, the 90s when I started clubbing, very late 90s. But it sounds so full of amazing club nights, not just fetish nights, but music all linked together. So many people talk about the music as well. It's like this booming culture. Yeah, and what's interesting about the culture from a lot of these stories that we've been hearing is how it's so mixed of genders and sexualities. I think that that's something that you see on the fetish scene a lot. And it's still quite like that today, although it can be London-centric. I know that outside London fetish nights can be predominantly straight as well yeah and don't forget that although lots of these stories are about the clubs this is a very diy thing and there are loads of places and ways to meet up because it's about the people right not the places yeah but for now let's go back to the club because fish transported me back in time and took me to chain reaction okay well adam come on let's go into chain reaction i mean you're not allowed in because it's a women only night but we'll make an exception just for you and first, we're going to walk up the 39 steps in Vauxhall that take you to the front door of the Market Tavern, which is in a massive tower block. And it's on the, the first floor, which is up 39 steps above the car park. And we go in the double doors. On the right hand side, there's the coat check. And the first thing that hits you is the smell. And it's not an unpleasant smell, but it's the smell of a club, which we all know. It's a little bit beer, a little bit maybe vomit, a bit of the toilets bit of leather, maybe some BO, you know, that lovely aroma that clubs have that we treasure and adore. And you're going to hear some house music, you're going to hear some dancing music, and you're going to see wall-to-wall dykes all wearing black. 
because that's what you have to wear. And some kink and some leather and some chains and some cufflet, handcuffs, not cufflinks, handcuffs. And just everybody having a marvellous time. You might see somebody tied up, might see somebody getting whipped. You never know your luck. We just did what we wanted. We, there was never a feeling that, oh, we're going to get into trouble. Never. So, yeah, I don't, I don't. And the men's nights, of course, they had their own clubs. You know, they had everything up in Vauxhall. You know, I, I think we were quite tame by comparison, really. <laughs> this is a logbook entry from March 10th, 1995, entitled Dog Avalanche. Had a desperate call from a guy in the middle of a sex party at his home. The others had suggested a dog avalanche. Not knowing what this was, he fled from the room with the the excuse that he needed to fluff up his hair and called us for help. What is a dog avalanche, he begged. Neither Phil nor I were able to help the poor man. He was very good. He very bravely went back to his party to admit his ignorance. He then called us back to enlighten us. A dog avalanche is being screwed up the arse and in the mouth at the same time, but being screwed so hard down the throat that you vomit. Then, it seems, your sphincter muscle tightens on the cock up your arse. Sick making? Yes. Even though I've been doing SM for quite a while, in the sense that the things that I enjoyed as a, as a bottom in an SM scene had certain limits to do with how much pain I could endure. And I was always, you know, using the stop word or avoiding it. And uh, one time I had sex with a, a friend of mine uh, who I played with on occasions, who was, was a top and stuff. He said, you know, you really chicken out much too early, he said. I'll tell you what. You just lay down on the floor. I'm not going to tie you down. And I'm going to take your stop word away for 10 minutes. And he was a good friend. I trusted him. I known him for a very long time. And he just got a, a leather strap of some sort and whacked my shoulders really hard quite a few times. And because I didn't have a stop word, actually, and I discovered I liked it. <laughs> and the similar thing happened to me with a friend in... Um, the US, where I'd not, so that's a more thuddy thing, and I'd really been quite wary of stingy things like whips and things like that, and canes. And again, I, 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 a friend of, uh, of mine in the US, uh, we were staying at the same hotel at a, a, an event, and he said, I'd really like to whip your back. And I thought, don't chicken out, just be open to new experiences. And he did, and I thought, gosh, this is wonderful. Because it was something new that I'd sort of prevented myself from enjoying. Because it's about, SM is, it's about exploring your limits. It's about going into a sort of slightly sort of spiritual subspace type thing. And sometimes if you pull out, you just don't get there and you miss out on the fact that you've had this amazing scene and it takes you half an hour to recover because you're headed somewhere else. So there was lots of, uh, those were some of the things that I, I, I learned. Um, I was paid for sex once, but my only time in my life, by this man I, I, I chatted to at a, a bar in, I think, Los Angeles, um, who said, I'd really like to suck your cock. I have a van outside. Anyone who listens to this will know exactly who it is, but I'm sure he doesn't mind. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, he said, I'll give you one of my rare T-shirts in exchange. I said, 
okay. So we went our sex in his van. And I was like, I think I've just been paid for sex. So it's not an SM thing, but it's just about the strange things that happen. Right, the dungeon. The dungeon is, was where fire is now in Vauxhall. And um, people were running clubs there. And I teamed up with a with a friend of mine, a male friend of mine, who was a, um, a journalist at the time working for Boys Magazine. And um, we decided that if I bought the women and he bought the men, we could probably have a pretty successful club. But if I take you by the hand and walk you into the dungeon, <laughs> so it's Sunday afternoon, it's a nice, bright, sunny day. You're going to come to the dungeon. You've got all your best kit on, uh, you know, your sporty, sporty spice look with your little tight shorts and your all your muscles out. Take you by the hand, walk you in. The very first thing you notice is the overwhelming smell of mould. I kid you not. It was an absolute health risk, that club. <laughs> but it did have a lot of equipment in it. It had lots of, like, places to chain people up and, play, you know, like, uh, wood crosses and oh, God knows what else. Um, and so, yeah, sexy things did happen there. There was a side room. There was a dance room. There was a bar. And it was, again, it was mainly boys because it was the Sunday afternoon for men used to mainly be Market Tavern from two to four. Then they'd all go over the road to the Vauxhall Tavern from four to eight. And then they'd come back to the Market Tavern to dance in the evening. So that was in Vauxhall. That, that was like a, a route, you know, that was well worn for loads and loads and loads of gay men in the early 90s. And so, yeah, we kind of filled the gap that the Market Tavern had made when it shut. So that was 93. And then um 94 95 unfortunately it closed around the time princess diana died so yeah that's how we remember it this is a logbook entry from march the 8th 1995 the caller asks can foot fetishists stroke toe suckers get verrucas in the mouth since they are, I believe, a fungus-type infection, I suggested the caller err on the side of caution and try getting into boots. And for more informed advice, talk to his local gum clinic. Another volunteer writes, viral actually, like common warts. And then another volunteer wrote, isn't this another case for giant condoms or dental dams or something? Okay, one day in a bus queue in Brixton, this man... Um, started talking to me about reflexology. And as he was talking to me, he kind of gradually sank to his knees and he was generally focusing on my feet. I wasn't even wearing high heels. I was wearing kind of kitten heels, you know, suitable for the office, slingback, black slingbacks. Uh, and he's going on about how he could give me a foot massage. Of course, you're in a bus queue in London. You're talking to a complete stranger. He looked a bit like a, a street, per, you know, street homeless person. Everybody starts moving away from me like I'm mad. I'm always polite to street people. So, you know, I'm engaging this, this man in conversation about re reflexology or whatever it was. And uh, I'm just saying, no, no, thank you. No, thank you. He eventually is on his knees and he said, well, could I just sniff them? At which point I said, no, now you're embarrassing me. Get up and go away. Which he did because one of the things I did learn in the BDSM clubs is men like that do exactly what they're told. <laughs> is all this feet chat getting you hot and heavy, Adam? <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel? 
How do you feel hearing Claire talking about feet, though? Seriously. <laughs> well, obviously, it's funny because it's feet, but it's also serious to me because it's feet. It's bizarre. I know that most people are freaked out and disgusted, but that's the beauty of a fetish, isn't it? I even feel awkward about talking about it here on this freaky podcast, even though I shouldn't. But the point is, I want to lay on the floor and have a man push his feet into my face. Okay, Adam, get your freak on. (laughs) Get the picture. Let's talk about teddy bears. This is a logbook entry from April 12th, 1992. Caller rang about the teddy bear group, Men With Beards. That meets at the Empire on Wednesdays. Asking for a phone number for the group. I couldn't find anything on it. Am I just being stupid? Or have we got got any information on this? This is a logbook entry from March the 12th, 1994. Quote, I've developed a crush on Steve McDonald from Coronation Street. He was on Noel Edmonds show the other night and when he got gunged, I came in my pants. Gee, my first weird call. Another volunteer writes, Call that weird? You ain't heard nothing yet. Yes, gunge is a whole thing. Definitely a real kink. Definitely a porn genre. Lovely, sloppy stuff. (laughs) For sure. But kinks can be controversial in many ways. Outside and inside of these communities, there are always lots of different conversations going on around ableism, many legal obstacles and practices that could be racialized, which Femi tells us a bit more about here. And just a note, when Femi talks about the Railway Arch Project, she's talking about the Black Lesbian and Gay Centre in Brixton in London, which was a social space for support groups and counselling and things like that. I think the Black Lesbian and Gay Centre Project was probably the one place where the debate about kink and uh, BDSM didn't get heated. Uh, It was just a kind of, uh, we won't do that, will we? No. (laughs) Kind of thing. And every now and again, you know, maybe somebody would print To be fair... Actually, you know, there are well-known black photographers and artists who um, who are celebrated, who are quite into kink. It's just that it wasn't in that space. I'm Femi Otitoju. I'm 63 years old. As important as the discussion around language was, equally important was the discussion about what became of the spaces that we fought so hard to get who was allowed in and what were they allowed to do there Um, and our little um, railway uh, art had to be everything for everyone who didn't identify as part of white as you know the white community and actually we wanted to invite them in as well to come because some of us had white partners you know we wanted them to be able to come along so um, on the face of it, counselling, support, you know, groups, uh, those sorts of things were easy. It's when it came to social space that um, things started to get difficult. And it wasn't just at the centre, of course, that was true all over the place. The big debates, kink, SM, um, we were very politically motivated. So sadomasochism um, was never really a big discussion. I think we pretty much agreed that 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 there wasn't that sort of thing shouldn't be going on in the space and I think that's because because so many of us identified as black or as we'd say now minority ethnic and the the links between the imagery of BDSM of kink 
are so close to the links of the imagery that is evoked when you think about times of, you know, when people were in, people of colour were enslaved and um, just suffering so badly that, you know, the restrictions, the physical restrictions, the chains, the handcuffs, the, you know, even though they weren't actually handcuffs, the things like the masks and um, and so on, just even thinking about it makes me feel a bit sick. Um, and things like slave auctions and the thing, the games people played were so often yeah, reminiscent of the things that people faced during the days of slavery, even though most of us in the UK aren't necessarily descended. We don't know. But even so, we aren't that a lot of us are not that closely connected. It's still part of our lives. And so it was quite easy in easier in that space, I think, than any other to go. No, that stuff's not happening here. I suppose the other places where I saw discussions around kink or... I mean, I didn't actually use the word kink very much. I think I used S&M in a very stern sound of voice, you know. Um, and I think the other areas for me where it came up was things like lesbian strength marches, where the women wearing um, wearing clothes, leather chains, you know, or even just too many bits of metal in, piss in various places um, would, you know, would spark debate, the discussion about whether they should be on the march, whether they should be at the front of the march, back of the march. Nothing changes. I mean, that's still... That's still going on today. Um, and likewise, um, you know, various clubs sprang up. And uh, I think there were divides within the movement, often based on your political affiliations or the absence of them. So, you know, the more strongly feminist you considered yourself to be, the more likely you were to say, therefore, I, you know, I disapprove of, of, of kink. Although, of course, if you spoke to those women, they might also say they were feminist. Um, so... It was a false division. None of us are perfect. And I think that even the most staunch feminist every now and again does things that uh, wouldn't necessarily other people be considered feminist. I'm, I know myself, uh, you know, I'm a strong, independent woman. I've done, you know, car maintenance classes and all sorts of things. But if someone, if I got stopped by the police because I knew I'd run a red light and done something wrong, blow feminism, I would weep. Because they're more likely to let you go, you know. So just because just because you call yourself a feminist doesn't mean to say you're ever never going to do anything that is perhaps not completely in keeping with most feminist thinking. This is a logbook entry from the fifth of April two thousand and one. Repeat caller. Spoke twice to him myself. Lives about a hundred miles from London. Is into heavy S and M is a bottom. Cutting, blood play, etc. Calls are always long and drawn out. Very insecure about himself. Asks directly for reassurance. Identifies as bisexual. Seemingly very needy and emotional. Kinky sex is often the place where care and consent are spoken about the most. But other people don't always see that, which means that it can often draw the attention of the police. Yeah, which brings us to a thing called Operation Spanner. We're going to turn it over to Derek, who can explain. Spanner started, and Spanner's are the code name that the police gave the um, operation, was uh, an operation that started because the police stopped 
a man in Wales and in his car they found a load of videos um, and um, they looked at these videos and they were they were just I think at the time generally looking for child porn but also there was this idea that there were snuff movies around this was all in the back of their head, the, you know, the mythical snuff movies. So they looked at these videos, and they were videos that this man and his friends had recorded their SM scenes. And they were not mild SM scenes. There were lots of marks and bruises and cuts and things. And the police said, well, this looks like violence. You know, are these people still alive? This sort of stuff. And the man said, yeah, they're all friends of mine. Um, I'll give you their details if you want. Um, and so the police trawled all these other men um, who, believing they'd done nothing wrong legally, said, yeah, that was me, that was here, whatever. We were just having fun. It was all consensual. So they did this, and the police spent millions of pounds on this investigation. And there were no snuff movies or anything, and they decided they had to have something to show for their efforts so they prosecuted um, 16 men who were, who were actually convicted. And um, to show how convoluted the English law is, the men were, were convicted under the 1861 Offences Against the Person Act. You put this in context, in 1861, if you had a serious cut, you know, a deep cut, you'd probably die of sepsis or tetanus or something. But still, if you have a cut that breaks the skin is considered to be not just a common assault, but it's a more serious assault. And the 16 men were all given suspended sentences, and three of them actually went to prison for six months. Some of the men were convicted of um, aiding and abetting an assault on themselves, which is because, or aiding and abetting the assault because they were videoing it. And the history of this goes back to bare-knuckle fighting in the streets, again in the 19th century, where the only way that they could think of stopping people gathering around and betting on these bare-knuckle fights in the streets was to make an offence to watch. So you've got this, you know, old 19th century stuff being applied to present day. When this was brought to our attention, because um, there was a lot of publicity in the newspapers uh, about this with pictures of the 16 men, um, I felt sort of, well, I felt frightened. I felt um, intimidated. I felt oppressed. I felt sorry because I knew some of the men. Uh, some of them were not close friends, but certainly men who I, I came across socially and chatted to, things like that. So, and I, I and it didn't make a lot of sense. How could it be that something that I knew was being done safely um, and consensually was criminalised? Now, this happened in the about 1991, which is 10 years after SM Gay started, which started in 1981. So I and other people had spent 10 years educating people about safe SM practices, about safe techniques from, you know, really trivial, simple things like just, you know, how to use handcuffs or rope to things like flogging or whipping, things like that. 
we decided what to do, and we decided we had a decision to make. We could either go home, go underground, or double up our visibility. And that's what we decided to do. We decided that this really was our time to stand up for SM as a, a practice, um, as a, a sexual preference, and that more than ever, it was important to um, do our education, not just about the technical aspects, but also about the law. I've mentioned you know, aiding and abetting an assault against yourself. Um, the other one was a man called Alan Oversby, who was a professional piercer, very famous uh, piercer. And he had done a piercing in one of these videos, um, a sort of part of a sex scene. And the ruling said that you could only have a body piercing if it was for cosmetic purposes. But if either the piercer or the person having the piercing at that time, or possibly at a future date, might get sexual pleasure from the piercing, then it was illegal. So the piercer has to sort of be psychic to know whether if you have your cock pierced or your tits pierced now, sometime in the future you might find it sexually arousing. This is typical of sort of archaic English law. This issue of piercing sounds really funny and it's a weird thing about how the law works and how the law doesn't understand people and what they want to do with their own bodies. I just can't imagine what would be the next steps to battle this. Once we decided that we were going to fight this in lots of different ways, um, a number of things happened. One is that we helped and supported the setting of something called Countdown on Spanner, which was a pansexual campaigning organisation and fundraising organisation organization because... Going through the courts involves lawyers and things. Um, it went to the Appeals Court, the House of Lords, which was before our current Supreme Court, and to the European Court of Human Rights. And all that cost money, though a lot of the lawyers were giving their time cheap or for free. So there was the Spanner Trust raising money and, 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 and Countdown on Spanner campaigning. And of course... It's a sort of Barbara Streisand effect. If you try and suppress something, all you end up doing is publicising it even more. So I, I did a couple of programmes for Channel 4. Um, I appear, you know, myself and other people appeared on lots of talk shows and things, on the radio, on the TV. So all this happened was alerted loads of people who'd had SM interests but didn't know there were other people like them that it was around, and these were people who were confident and fighting for it and standing up for it. Bizarrely, the European Court said, we don't believe that these people will be prosecuted. I mean, how they know, I don't know, but that was their, their ruling was that. But also there's this thing called the margin of appreciation, which allows countries to have a sort of wriggle room around human rights, and they said it fell within that as well. I certainly remember Operation Spanner and I remember it being a subject of discussion and we did certainly have calls from people who um, were 
involved in BDSM and maybe wanted to talk about that or wanted to find out what if there were local clubs or I don't particularly I don't very strongly remember um, calls from people who were worried about the possibility of um, police harassment or prosecution or whatever for what they were doing and I don't remember I don't remember ever having to say to people well watch out because you might get raided if you if you do this here or there it was a shocking certainly a shocking time and I think the you know the relief when in the end the prosecutions were dropped but it was yeah it was pretty nasty it was very nasty stuff very nasty stuff Obviously, at Dungeons in the Sky, we did workshops about SM and the law. And one of them is memorable because we invited senior metropolitan police officers along to a panel. Um, and they came along in their uniform with, you know, endless pips on their shoulders and fancy caps and things. And we had to sort of reassure people that they weren't here investigating. They were here, in a sense, making their peace, I think you might say. I mean, the panel was quite interesting because... Basically, what they said was policing people's private sexual activities is not a priority for us. We're much more concerned, you know, if you go look at Vauxhall with its various bars and clubs and things of all sorts, we're much more concerned about drug dealing than we are about sex going on in those clubs or in people's homes. It's not a priority. So it was, it was a, a very reassuring thing. And it was reassuring for two reasons. One, because of what they said. And also because people could see that these were senior police officers who were engaging with the community, not fighting it. This is a logbook entry from March the 4th, 1995. This guy phones and says, Hello, can you tell me about S&M, please? And I thought he said M&S, i.e. Marks and Spencer. So I said, What are you looking for? Something new and different, he replies. Well, said I, you ought to try the big store at Marble Arch. They put new lines there all the time. New lines? Oh no, I'm not into piercing. The penny dropped. I mean, M&S might be someone's kink. <laughs> do you want to sit in a bath of Percy Pigs, Tash? I... <laughs> do you think one day M&S will ever do piercings? Percy Pigs, poppers and piercings? <laughs> I think Percy Pig is a dirty little slut and M&S have just commodified him. Well, we all are really, aren't we? Commodified sluts. <laughs> We've been talking about kinks from the 90s and the good news is that people are just as freaky today. So we spoke to Matt Scully, who organises fetish events, and Alex Warren, a.k.a. Kiwi, who produces a hot party called Crossbreed. Hi, my name's Matt. I'm 33, and I've worked in the fetish scene for over 10 years um, now and still continue to work in there. <laughs> With today's fetish scene, um, I think the first thing there, in terms of difference is that they're able to connect with other people and to seek out other people who are into kinks and to uh, find education around different types of sexual um, and fetish practices. In terms of like nightlife, there's, I think there's a fairly healthy scene. I think it's somewhat depleted a little bit over the past couple of years through venues closing down and just generally queer spaces not be, being available anymore. Um, but... I think it 
the fetish scene has always because it's such a quite a a, quite a, a tight-knit community that they people find ways of making events happen making spaces available for people making um educational available for people i'd say like places that are quite um our institutions are places like the backstreet which has been around since the 70s which is like a, which is a essentially a, a leather bar um with various nights and um that you know they sort of uh, they they sort of stick to quite old school um traditional old guard um uh, ideology which i think is really good and i think serves the community in a, in a really good way because it um it pays homage to the people who've kind of pioneered um pioneered those types of spaces um places like torch garden which has been in for like 30 years which um has a great mixture of uh, sex sex positivity um kink um kink play and also like avant-garde fashion and um performance stuff and i think i think over the years it's been a torch garden is a great gateway place for people to kind of go into a space um experience it perhaps get over any sort of misconceptions of like what um sex positive or fetish spaces are like um and ha- and have fun and meet people and sort of uh, maybe maybe put like a, a have a more realistic view of what that you know what it, it means to be a fetishist um more like more um sort of more uh up and coming uh, uh spaces like a club for Bowton um, and even crossbreed i would say like are create uh, paving the way for more uh uh queer um inclusive spaces um and again are providing like a new um element to um kink and the kink and fetish space and have have grown hugely over the past couple of years and again i think bringing in more of a young a, a younger crowd as well i think to people who are maybe unfamiliar going to fetish places there's this meet this misconception that you turn up and it is like a dynastic orgy um it's not necessarily the case i think I what I always find really amusing is going to these spaces and then like the quite quite in, like boring conversations you can have with people like while something is going on and like I remember one of the f- one of the first sort of instances that really stuck in my head was I was quite young and going oh, wait, I must have been torch garden I was quite young and chatting to um it was she must have been I think she was a primary school teacher or a primary school headmistress and she and we're just talking about working in a primary school because my dad works in a primary school um, and her husband was like like completely worshipping her feet at the same time. I remember thinking, this is such an innate conversation I'm having. Like this is the sort of conversation I would have with my family and like while there's a whole kind of um, dynamic going on with her, her sub, um, I thought that was really interesting. But there's, um, like with these spaces, like they're, they're very well monitored like there's there's normally always a couple of like people who like who are act as dungeon monitors who will make sure that there is um people can uh, playing safely and conducting themselves correctly f- within that space and also helping them provide excuse me education and support like you know a lot of people who come to these spaces for the first time it, it probably is quite overwhelming and there is i think there's this min- misconception that if you go to these spaces you have to know everything and every anything about bdsm fetish like the different practices the hierarchies like you don't it's all about education and i think you know if you want to go if you're going with your partner and they want to 
be tied to a cross and get flogged you know having someone there to help you and support you through that in a not doing it in a in a way that sort of belittles you and your experiences like is really important because I think and I think going into those spaces and being aware that you can ask those questions and you can have someone sort of help you hold your hand along the way is 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 really good the fetish community are very good at self-policing and they're very good at being aware of how to engage um, appropriately with each other most of the time I mean obviously there's always going to be instances um, I would say it's always generally it's always um, straight men that are that sort of struggle in those spaces because they're essentially put in um, on equal le- le- playing fields with everyone where actually a lot of their bullshit that might pass in other types of clubs just isn't tolerated and so I think it's always actually the people who struggle the most in in those spaces from my experience and I I might be completely wrong are are straight cis men which is great (laughs) I'm Alex I'm a DJ and a music producer and also a promoter of a party called Crossbreed. Um, I use they them pronouns. Yeah, I'm happy to be talking. <laughs> Crossbreed is a queer, sex positive fetish party that is quite centered in music. Well, it's centered in music and community and we create, we try to create um, safer spaces for people to explore their queerness, their sexuality, their kinks um, in, um, I guess, a more public setting. First of all, you kind of, there's a little bit of gatekeeping. We have quite a strict dress code, which you need to pass to get through the doors. And we do that for lots of reasons, but mostly it's to create a safer space for people once they're inside. Um, and then once you come through the doors, people tend to find that they sense co- quite like a sense of community and warmth and you're often welcomed by we have armband wearers that are there to um, support you and look after you and it's a very kind of open-minded space people tend to share a same or similar like values and politics it's also just like a rave it's like sweaty the music's good. It's a lot of fun. And, you know, if you venture further into the playrooms and you want, and that's what you want that to be a part of your experience, things get pretty like filthy in there. And it's, you know, like it, yeah, you'll, you'll see some things. Yeah. And that's kind of it. Um, we have like a wellness sanctuary too, where um, you can go to decompress and look after yourself. If you, you know, you, maybe you've had a scene and, you're dropping there's people in there making cups of tea and biscuits and there's blankets and it's kind of like a cozy quiet space to just kind of take a minute for yourself we have a dress code for a number of reasons one of them is to detract kind of cis straight men from coming because often they might not feel comfortable getting dressed up but also because we would like those people if they do come and they are allies to push themselves out of their comfort zone and when they're out of that comfort zone they may kind of reassess how they approach conversations um a lot of their like self-learn um patriarchal systems that we are all subjected to like 
we want to create an environment that kind of questions those. And I think the dress code is a good starting point. Um, all we really ask is that um, you express yourself. We don't allow fancy dress or anything like that, but we do ask that you kind of present a look. Um, and we say that if you can get on a bus um, and not have everyone on the bus turn and stare at you in disbelief, you probably won't get in. I don't, I, I don't know. I don't like to kind of get too focused on the fetish and the kink side of things because, I mean, for me, like most sex involves power and power plays. And really that's all we're talking about here and like negotiating that and working out where we fit within those dynamics and um, what we like. Um, and I think for me, like the future, the future, like I, I, I think uh, on a political level, like the queerness is becoming more and more important. Um, it's, and um, I think, I think that's why these spaces really matter. Um, yeah. I think, you know, I think sexuality and finding your own sexuality and being able to explore with support and without shame and stigma and amongst other people that share similar values is like really, really relevant. That brings us to the end of episode nine. Now we've got one more episode left for you in this season. And it's going to be a bit different because it is our final episode as we close the logbooks. Calls to Switchboard are confidential, so to bring the logbooks to life, we've changed callers' details. The Logbooks is produced by Shivani Dave, Tash Walker and Adam Smith in partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline, and supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. If you think other people would like the logbooks, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. These ratings and reviews really help others to discover the show. You can send us your feedback and stories to hello at thelogbooks.org or join the conversation on social media with the hashtag thelogbooks. Our music is by Tom Foskett Barnes and our artwork is by Natalie Dotto. Thanks to... Steph Dickers and the team at the Bishopsgate Institute, the folks at ACAST, Content is Queen, David Pye, the staff and volunteers at Switchboard and everyone who shared their stories with us. Switchboard continues to take phone calls from 10am to 10pm every day. If you're affected by any of the issues in this podcast or need to discuss anything to do with gender identity or sexuality, you can call Switchboard on 0300 330 0630, email chris at switchboard.lgbt or instant message via switchboard.lgbt where you can also donate money or time to help.